Well, we all need motivation. I know that everybody here probably needs motivation on a daily basis, and we all need motivation in life. Sometimes motivation is defined as ambition. It's defined as, uh, you know, it's synonymous with drive, enthusiasm, initiative. And I know that we probably know that there's a lot of books that have been written on motivation. If you just walk into Walmart or any of these stores over here down by Easton and go through their spirituality or self-help section, there are just a slew of books. And I looked up a few as I was preparing for this message, and I looked at some of the bestsellers over the years. And for anyone who's been in the business world, you've heard of these over and over. I know many of you have been in the corporate world, or some of you still are. But, you know, some of these uh, books I looked up and I just had a little definition here of what they say, like the, the summary of what they're doing here. Of course, one book that's always been very popular is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We have uh, probably heard of that one by Covey. Now he has a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. I, I, I saw that somewhere anyway, so I give that to your teen. But that's been a very, very big book, a big, huge seller. Um, then we have another book uh, called How to Take Immediate Control of Your Mental, Emotional, Physical, and Financial Destiny. It says, wake up and take control of your life. Uh, from the best-selling author Tony Robbins, the nation's leader in the science of peak performance, shows you his most effective strategies and techniques for mastering your emotions, your body, your relationships, your finances, and your life. The acknowledged expert in psychology of change, Tony Robbins, provides a step-by-step -step program teaching the fundamental lessons of self-mastery They'll enable you to discover your true purpose, take control of your life, and harness the forces that shape your destiny. Then we have the one of the all-time bestsellers, The Power of Positive Thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. I'm sure we're probably familiar with that one. And then we have another book called Drive by Daniel Pink. He says here, motivation comes from the judicious, or no, he says, motivation comes from many sources and that at the highest level of performance, motivation comes from your deepest and most profound sense of who you are and want to be. And then, of course, life coaching is in, right? You can be a certified life coach today, take a program and get your certification, and you can be paid on a professional level to help motivate people to achieve their goals. Very, very popular thing today is life coaching. So it's pretty obvious that people are looking for ways to be motivated. There's just no doubt about it everywhere we go. It's been an ongoing thing for several decades in our American culture, it's a very popular item to talk about is motivation. And, you know, for we, us as believers, there's no doubt there are times in our spiritual life where we need motivation, okay? We just sang that song today about having, asking God to renew us with a steadfast spirit, and there's many times in our spiritual lives where we need a sense of, uh, we need God to continuously push us forward and motivate us in our faith. We have challenges. Some of us have highs and lows. We may have job changes, family issues, personal crisis, and we just struggle sometimes to keep going forward, you know, and sometimes we may say to ourselves, you know, I'm just not feeling it. You know, I'm just not feeling it. I, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not feeling it. I don't know if I want to go to services. I'm not feeling it like I want to read the word today. I just don't feel it. I don't desire it. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like uh, talking about others about my faith. It just goes on and on where the common saying today is I'm not feeling it. And that's why, you see, we are so blessed because God knew that our emotions would wreak havoc with us. You see, he knew that we would 
have highs and lows. And he, the way he wired us is that he just knew that we would have a challenge in this area where we're going to have periods of our spiritual life where we just are not motivated. I mean, we just are having a, a challenge emotionally. And that is why the good news is that God has given us something to help us on a regular basis, something that we can go to all the time that is the unchanging word and is the unchanging word of God. We have this book to help us. And so every time that we Perhaps God prompts us to get into the word where, you know, he, we're not sure, maybe our emotions are up and down, we're not feeling it today, and we get prompted by the rock to get into this book, get back into it. God does that for our benefit, okay? It's not like he's lonely and he's sitting there and God's out, you know, up there saying, or God is there saying, well, you know what, I'm really lonely today and I need some fellowship with Eric and I'm going to prompt him to get into my word to fellowship with me, Okay? God lacks nothing. He, he doesn't even need us. He's a perfect triune being, okay? He doesn't need us. What he does, when he does that and he prompts us to get into the word or study the word, it's for our benefit, okay? God doesn't need to get anything from us. It's for our benefit, okay? And so that's why when it comes to motivation, when we're struggling to keep going forward in the life, or in the spiritual life, and keep going forward and following Yeshua, we can go to the Word of God. And one passage that definitely will keep us going forward and give us motivation is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I spoke on 1 Corinthians 15, oh, about a year and a half ago, and I know you all remember, right? And I know you've all gone back and listened to the podcast, right? And you're like, okay, well, Eric went through this, right? I already know he's going to talk about it. Well, no, because I only actually got up to about verse 12. I didn't go through the whole chapter. So what I'm going to do is go through some of the nuggets of this chapter. We can't possibly do all 56, 57 verses here, 58 verses. There's just not enough time. I mean, we'd have to spend like three weeks on that. But I'd like to go ahead and pull out some of the things out of this chapter and talk about some issues here. Now, the one thing that is very powerful about 1 Corinthians 15, of course, it is the, the chapter on the resurrection, and Paul was dealing with an audience here that were denying the resurrection, okay? And Paul wrote this letter, uh, most likely between 50 and 55 AD. Uh, that's the general dating on it, and he's writing to a group here that were really denying the resurrection. So, they were denying a key foundational truth that had serious ramifications in the rest of their faith, okay? There was a, like a trickle-down effect, okay, if they did not accept the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you look at the beginning here, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says here that I'm going to actually just kind of go over, I'm going to quickly kind of glide over verses 1 through 11 here because I went over this last time, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time a ton of time on verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to give a summary here. So Paul says here, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are also being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance that I also, what I also received, that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it, though it was not, but by the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach as you believe. So Paul starts out by saying how this past event of the resurrection has present implications in their faith, okay? He talks about you're able to stand in your faith right now by what has happened with the resurrection of the Messiah. And then he goes on here in verses 3 through 11, he talks about how uh, the Messiah has died according to the scriptures, the Tanakh. He talks about he was raised on the third day according to the Tanakh. And then he goes on to talk about the appearances, uh, the resurrection appearances, okay? And he gives uh, the list here, the creed. Now, this creed here, as I said last time, is the creed verses 3 to 8, really is a creed that most scholars believe Paul received much earlier than 55 AD. He probably got this from Peter in Galatia, since he does mention Peter name, Peter's name in Aramaic. So this creed is a much earlier source uh, for the, uh, the whole letter itself. It's a very early source that we have here. So Paul lists the appearances here. Okay, so then we come down to verse 12, and that's what our, I really want to kind of stay on and go in that direction in this chapter, because like I said, we can't get through every verse today. But as we come down to verse 12, we see here very clearly that Paul begins to talk about the ramifications of not believing Yeshua rose from the dead and denying the resurrection of the dead, okay? He says here in verse 12, he says, now if Mashiach is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even the Mashiach has been raised. And if the Messiah or Mashiach has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain, we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised the Messiah whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then not even the Messiah has been raised. If the Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still dead in your sins. Okay, now in verse 12, we see here that Paul is going to build a case that obviously if there's no resurrection of the dead, then if they're saying there's no res resurrection of the dead in general, then the Mashiach cannot be raised from the dead. Now, in Israel's history, when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, it's a very fascinating topic, and I just taught on this a little more in the atonement resurrection class we did uh, over the MSI term last term. Some of you were in it, I know. But, you know, it's kind of interesting because the resurrection for Israel is not necessarily only about an individual uh, just being raised from the dead, well, like a, a person, just an individual, such as Job talks about or somebody else in the Tanakh. It has to do with Israel's entire restoration, okay? Because if you study the Tanakh, as we all know, there's been several exiles where Israel is not living in the land and they've been scattered all across uh, different parts of the world. And God always promises to bring them back to the land and restore them. And that's why today in our theology here, mostly in Beth Messiah, we believe that God has been progressively doing this over several hundred years where he's been bringing Jewish people back to the land. It's a progressive concept going, ongoing right now. So when they thought about the resurrection, they 
associated it with the hope of Israel, where God would really restore Israel, okay, in a corporate sense. That's why we read passages like in Ezekiel 37 about the dry bones passage, where God will, uh, you know, bring them back to the land, they'll have the cleansing of sin, and God will unite them together. And also with resurrection has to do with judgment. Of course it has to do with judgment, it has to do with the justice of God such as we read in Daniel 12, 1-2, where God talks about one day where those will be raised to everlasting life or everlasting, everlasting judgment. And, you know, it's just a fascinating concept. Now, I have a couple definitions here by a couple scholars, how they define resurrection is tied in with the uh, big picture, as I say. One of them is by a guy named Peter Walker. He says here, resurrection referred to a physical raising back to life within this world, of those whom God chose, the resurrection of the just on the last day. So when the disciples claimed the resurrection for Yeshua, they were claiming that God has done for one man what they were expecting him to do for all his faithful people at the end of time. That's what Paul talks about when he refers to the hope of Israel in Acts 23, verses 6. Okay, verses, uh, chapter, uh, verses 6. Another definition here given by another scholar, he says, to say Yeshua has been raised from the dead was to assert that the general resurrection has already begun. Only such an assertion was resurrection or raised from the dead, the proper terminology. The general resurrection was, it were, the grand final apocalypse, the final moment when a God of justice publicly and visibly justified the world, turned it from a place of evil and violence to one of goodness and peace to announce the resurrection issue as to claim such an event had already started. So Paul is telling his audience, look, If you're going to deny the resurrection of the dead in the Tanakh, there's no resurrection of Yeshua as well. You can't separate them from each other. And he says here very clearly, if Yeshua is not raised from the dead, then we have a problem because, you see, we're out preaching this. This is our message. You know, we're preaching that Yeshua bodily rose from the dead. And if he didn't really rise from the dead, that means we're Torah breakers, okay? We're bearing false witness. We are terrible witnesses. And furthermore, God's reputation is on the line, okay? We're lying for God, if that's the case. We're making God into a liar. And so Paul takes this very, very seriously. He's saying, why bother to preach the gospel if Yeshua is not risen from the dead? You know, think about that. What is it that motivates us to even share our faith, okay? Is it just simply that Yeshua died? or is it he rose as well, okay? Now turn back to uh, Deuteronomy for a minute, Deuteronomy 21, as you keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15. This is really important. You know, what Paul could have done, and he, you know, it's very clear he doesn't do this, is he talks about how if Yeshua has not been raised, we are still in our sins. You know, it's very important to know what it was like on the ground to see Yeshua die and look at Deuteronomy verses 21, uh, verses 22 here, verse, chapter 21, verses 22. He says here in verse 22, in Deuteronomy verses, chapter 21, verse 22, it says here, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree and his body shall not remain all night on the tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So with that in mind, you know, Paul is very adamant about preaching the resurrected Messiah because he knew 
in a Jewish background that it's not going to be very effective to preach a cursed Messiah, okay? Because in Deuteronomy 21, from their understanding, if someone is hanging on an execution stake exposed in the middle of the day, they were believed to be cursed by God, all right? They're a Torah breaker. They've done something very serious here that they have broken the Torah, and God is, look, is actually passing a curse on them. So a Jewish person walks by and sees Yeshua hanging on that execution stake. They're not saying, oh, he loves me. Oh, what a loving Messiah. Oh, sweet Yeshua. No, they're saying he must have done something wrong that he is up there on that execution stake. So Paul knew that there was no way that they could preach a dead Messiah. A dead Messiah cannot save anybody. He says here, if the dead are not raised, your faith is futile. Faith, that thing that most of the culture misunderstands, right? They think it's like a, you just believe something where you don't know anything. You just take a step of faith, right? It's blind faith. No, biblically faith is fidelity, it's trustworthiness, it is trusting the object of your faith that he comes through for you. It's knowing something that is true. They have no faith unless Yeshua is risen from the dead. They have no fidelity to the one that has given them the faith to be faithful back to the one who has given that faith. That can't happen if Yeshua is not risen from the dead. Okay, so back to 1 Corinthians 15. So he also says here in verse 17, he says, okay, so he says in verse 17, if the Mashiach has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still dead in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Messiah perished as well. If Yeshua is not risen from the dead, every loved one we've ever had is in trouble, okay? Everybody uh, that we've known, everybody who we've wept over, if Yeshua has not been risen, there's no hope for them. And so that is a very serious issue because we as believers, put our hope in the future resurrection that one day we will be reunited with our loved one and they will experience the resurrection. Very serious ramifications here. Okay, so then he says here in verse 20, he says there, but in fact the Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man death, by a man came, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Mashiach all will be made alive. Okay, so now Paul links this issue of the relationship between Adam and us, or Adam and the Messiah. Now, it's kind of interesting, when you study this issue of the issue of the relationship between Adam and us and how that all works out, uh, you know, Howard says something last week, he had the, uh, this book that I actually have as well, it's, it's, on, it's called Rabbinical Theology by this one Jewish scholar, And it's interesting in Judaism, you know, they don't really have a worked out out an issue of kind of like what original sin is, right? Like, how does that work? I mean, do we, are we born into this world with sin? Is it something we're conceived in? And so I did a little research here, and I found a couple texts. It's interesting, in the the intertestamental period, what we call the pseudopigrapha texts, which we don't take them as canon or authoritative. But still, it's kind of interesting. A couple of these texts, they talk about the fall with Adam. And in Second Estrus, this Second Estrus, this is a book that was um, supposedly written by Ezra. But, you know, it's funny. In two passages here, in Second Estrus, uh, chapter 3, verse 21 to 22, it says here, For the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. 
Thus the disease became permanent. The law was in the hearts of the people, along with the evil root, but what was departed, the evil remained. Another passage in 2 Ezra 7, chapter 7, verse 11, it says, O Adam, what have you done? For though it is you who have sinned, this fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. Second Baruch, another Jewish pseudepigrapha text, says right here in verse 2nd uh, ch- Baruch uh, chapter 54, it says, For although Adam sinned first and has brought death upon all who are not in his own time, yet each of them who has been born from him has prepared himself the coming torment. So it's kind of interesting that in the pseudepigrapha literature, there is something about this relationship between Adam and how that affects humans. And so Paul says here, in Second First Corinthians, he says here, so by man came death, by as by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in the Messiah, so all shall be made alive. So people that are all around us today, it's a very interesting state that people are in because some people are going to die physically and spiritually, or some people are just going to die uh, physically and they're going to be raised spiritually, but some people are going to experience actually two deaths. So that means we uh, have more, and we should actually more uh, have more emphasis on wanting to preach the good news, okay? So people are either in Adam today or they're in the Messiah. That's our identity. Our federal head fell. Adam was our federal head, and people are either identified in him or identified in the Messiah today because he is the second Adam who take away, took away Adam's sin and impacts all of us. Okay. So he says here in verse 23, he says, but each in his own order, Messiah, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Messiah. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has expected all who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be in all. Well, now, those verses, there's a lot to unpack there, okay? And this is where we get into this issue of what you believe about your eschatology, right? And when I was a new believer, it was all about eschatology. That's what everybody talked about. But today, most people are not really talking about that as much. But in these verses right here, it's really going to depend on whether you believe in what we call a thousand-year reign, where we talk about how the Messiah comes back, he reigns on earth for a thousand years, and then after that, there is an eternal state where he does reign forever and ever and ever after that thousand years. Or you just reject all that, and you just believe the Messiah comes back and reigns forever. Uh, Look right here. I have a book, Revelation 20, the Millennial Debate. Now, there's something we think about every day, right? The issue of the millennium. But in these verses here, there's no way to really, you know, come to a dogmatic conclusion. But if you ask me, I believe personally a thousand-year reign, and then the Messiah will come back after that. But there's an intermediate kingdom right now. But one way or the other, the Messiah will come back and reign forever at the end, okay? Now, he says here in verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do you mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Messiah, die every day. What I gain, 
What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay. Now, verse 29 is a very interesting verse because it talks about this baptism issue. Apparently, Paul was exhorting them, saying there's no reason for anybody to be baptized because many people are being baptized if Yeshua has not been risen from the dead. And apparently, in Corinth, there were people who would come and be ready to be baptized, obviously, if someone was dying and they were already baptized, but there's replacements coming into the congregation. But he's saying that there's no need for that if Yeshua is not risen from the dead. Why be immersed, right? And that's not needed as well. Now, when he talks about here about dying every day, about this Ephesus issue, he says here about we fought beasts at Ephesus in verse 32, 31 to 32. He's obviously not talking about actual physical wild beasts, right? This is a metaphor for some of the people he had to deal with in Ephesus at that time, okay? Now, who here has heard the story of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Who here knows about Bonhoeffer, okay? When I was a new believer, uh, actually Henry actually handed me his Cost of Discipleship book. I found it on my shelf the other night, and actually there's a little uh, verse in that that he wrote on there. But that wasn't the first books I ever read as a new believer. But Paul is saying here about this issue of dying, you know, this issue of fighting wild beasts. He says here, he says that the dead, he says here in verse 32, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, Why do I even waste my time doing this if Yeshua is not risen from the dead? Now, Bonhoeffer was very interesting because I'm going to read a little uh, bio about him quickly here because I haven't, don't have his whole life memorized, but he was a, uh, a Lutheran pastor, okay? And he was in Germany at the time when Hitler was rising up, when the war was about to take place. And he actually learned the war was uh, very eminent, but Bonhoeffer was also a committed pacifist. So he obviously opposed the entire war and he could never really swear an oath to Hitler and fight in Hitler's army. So what he did was he ended up coming back to the United States. He left Germany and came back to the United States. In 1939, he took an invitation to Union Theological Seminary in New York, and he basically decided to teach. He took that position, and he actually found out as he got back to the States and, took, and went to Union Seminary after time, he realized, you know what, I made a mistake. I made a big mistake. I should not have come to the United States. And he said here, he wrote, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation, thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. So what happens is Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany and he leads a resistance to stop Hitler. And what happened was he ended up getting arrested in 1943 and imprisoned for about a year and a half. And he got transferred to a concentration camp and after he was associated with the plot to assassinate Hitler, he got tried. He had a trial, and then he was hung in 1945. He was executed, okay? Now, one of his students, uh, a woman, uh, a student named Eberhard Bethage, 
said here when she saw Bonhoeffer's execution. They said here, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God had heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he said a short prayer, then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued a few seconds later. In the almost 50 years I worked as a doctor, I have never ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer said that, uh, this, is, this is what Bonhoeffer said, he said, this is the end for me, but for me it is the beginning of life, said that right before he died. He also said, the call to discipleship means both death and life. It sets a believer in the middle of the daily arena against sin and the devil. Every day he encounters new temptations, and every day he must suffer anew for the Messiah's sake. The wounds and the scars he receives and the fray are living tokens of this participation in the execution stake of his Lord. So we see here that for Bonhoeffer, really, the only thing that allowed him to do that, to go through that, because he looked to the resurrection, right? That's what he had to look forward to, was life, was the resurrection in the future. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9 for a minute, as you keep your finger in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. <clears throat> now, you notice how Bonhoeffer just said here, this, this quote I just gave to him, I gave from him. He says here, he said, the call to discipleship means both death in life. It sets the, the believer in the middle of the daily reign against sin and the devil. Every day he encounters new temptations, and every day he must suffer anew for the Messiah's sake. The wounds and the scars he receives are the fray of living tokens of this participation, the execution stake of his Lord. If you come to chapter 9, you go down to verse uh, 21 here. Yeshua is foretelling his death. He says there in verse 21 of Luke 9, the Messiah says he, he strictly changed and commanded them to tell this to no one. And then Yeshua says, the son of man must suffer many things. He reje he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then in verse 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and my words of him and the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory, in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. I tell you, there's some of, their, some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So when Yeshua tells his disciples that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your execution stake daily and deny yourself, you know, that was a pretty hard saying in that culture, okay? I just talked about the issue of Deuteronomy 21 where... Anybody that was hanging on that execution stake was considered shame by God, right? It was the most shameful way to die. It was not a way to look at the Messiah and say, whoa, he really loves me. It was really a case of shameful embarrassment. So when Yeshua says to them, if you want to really follow me, you have to take up your execution stake and follow me, they knew what that meant. That meant rejection, that meant embarrassment, that meant shame, that meant misunderstanding, and, you know, let's face it, I, I thought about this over the years because I've, I've seen this. Um, you know, when it comes to following Yeshua, I think many of us, uh, as we tell people about the faith and we follow people where they're at now, we look at our own lives, isn't it true that in many cases, some of us came to know the Lord several years ago or maybe recently or whatever, and, you know, we've never really um, gone to Yeshua on a regular basis and said, you know, 
what do I need to do to follow you right now? Where am I at with you? What do I need to do to commit to you to follow you today, right? What is it that I need to deny so I can take up my execution stake and follow you today? I think for some of us, what we do is we receive the Messiah into our lives, and then we just kind of stop. It's like, or we just go so far. We just kind of stop at one point. It's like, I followed you far enough, okay? I, I've kind of gone far enough. You know, I, I'm not really sure if I want to go any farther, Yeshua. You know, I'm not even sure, I don't even, not even sure if I'm really interested in you challenging me about anything, right? Because deep down, uh, we're not really sure if, uh, you know, maybe it's just, hey, it's not worth it. You know, I don't want to follow Yeshua anymore. I've gone far enough. Well, that's unfortunate because, you see, throughout our lives as believers, as we keep going forward, he's going to keep asking us to deny ourselves and follow him, okay? But how do we do that? I mean, how do I deny myself, deny what I want, and follow Yeshua? I mean, that is so hard sometimes. Well, Paul understood this, and it ties right in with the resurrection. And look at Philippians chapter 3 here, what he says. He knew exactly what the answer was on how to overcome this. In Philippians 3, Paul says, <clears throat> I call this the joy book. Every time if you're really on emotional low or something, just read Philippians, right? It's supposed to like get you, like, you know, joy. Okay. Um, in Philippians 3, he says here, and he goes through his biography about his credentials, and then he comes down to verse 8. He says here, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as, lo as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing the Mashiach, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain the Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, comes from the Torah, but that which comes through faith in Messiah, the righteousness from God depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, I may share the sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul understood that to be conformed to the image of Messiah in his death was to understand the resurrection. You see, we can die because Yeshua rose, right? We can die to that thing all because Yeshua rose. That's the only reason we can die to something is because he rose from the dead. He empowers us to say no to that thing and go forward, right? Maybe there's a need. Maybe there's a need around you that God wants you to meet, and you're saying, I can't meet that need. I just can't do it. And God's saying, yes, you can. I rose from the dead. Maybe he's challenging you to pray more. Maybe when you want to do this, he's calling you to say, no, spend more time in intercession. I, that need needs to be met over here. Put that need aside. Go over here. I want you to meet that need over here. Maybe he's saying, I want you to teach somewhere. Maybe he's saying, I want you to share your faith with somebody. The needs are just endless. Maybe, how about this one? Maybe at Beth Messiah, maybe he's challenging you to say hello to somebody <laughs> that you don't, even, you don't even want to acknowledge. You've walked by him a thousand times and he's saying, I want you to talk to that person. Maybe he is challenging us to commit to join Beth Messiah. I don't know. We have a uh, building campaign going on. As you know, we have future goals. We can't really exist as a congregation in a vibrant way without people fully committing with us and partnering with us, okay? You might say, well, are you trying to guilt me into joining Beth Messiah? No, I'm not at all. I'm just saying that if God is calling you here 
Ask Yeshua, just say to him, is this what you're saying to me? You know, are you asking me to commit to this body and serve here? If he is, it's for your best. It's for their best and your best. You, you get blessed, okay? So, you know, if you look at it as a burden, you have to ask yourself, am I really going to commit to Yeshua and what he says here, okay? There's so many things that God can call us to do, you know, that he may be calling us to do, and we may just have to say, look, to follow Yeshua, I'm going to say no to this and say yes to this, okay? That's part of self-denial. But as I said, he rose from the dead. He can empower you to do anything. You know, Henry and everyone at MSI, I know this from experience, they spend hours, hours and hours laboring in the Word and in research to bring you the best classes we can bring here so you can receive rich teaching. That takes a, a self-denial. You know, it takes time and I know they love doing it, by the way, because I know they love to teach, but the point is that it, everything to be successful in the life of a believer is going to involve self-denial. There's just no way around it, okay? So Yeshua rose to empower us to say no and to deny ourselves and follow Yeshua, okay? Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 here. Now he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, he we talked a little bit here about Paul uh, dying and risking his life on the line. Bonhoeffer could go forward and give up his life because of the resurrection. And there's many people around the world doing that today who are laying down their lives to get the good news out. And of course, that's because of the resurrection. Now, he also says here, okay, so he says here this issue in verse uh, 30 and then 33. He says here, I'm sorry, in verse... Um, 20, 32, he says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought beasts of Ephesus? And then he says, the dead are not raised. Let us eat, drink. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have knowledge, I say to your shame. You see, they were denying the resurrection in Corinth, and it was impacted how they lived, right? They were denying a key foundational truth and it was having ramifications on how they live out their lives. And Paul wants them to sober up. You know, he says here, I want you to change your thinking. I want you to stop sinning in your thinking because your thinking is impacting your living, right? That's why sometimes it's so good just to like have a good book on doctrine. Look at this one right here. Know the truth, a handbook of belief. No, well, it says a Christian belief. I've had this one for years. But sometimes we have to just meditate on these key foundational truths because these truths impact our living, right? And we have, there's serious ramifications if we have erroneous thinking. Bad thinking leads to bad living, right? So Paul wants them to sober up, okay? Now, Paul wraps up here on this issue of, uh, of, this issue of like the, the resurrection of the body, what happens there, what kind of body it is, and he talks about how we'll have a body dominated by the Ruach, and he talks. He goes through the seed analogy. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because uh, time is, uh, of time issues, but if you go towards the end of the chapter, towards uh, verse 50 here, if you go down towards the end, towards verse 50, he says, I tell you the truth, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for the perishable body will put on the imperishable, 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the moral puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sin? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the Torah, the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Yeshua, our Messiah. And then he says here at the end, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that the, your labor is not in vain. If there's anything that should motivate us, anything that should give us a steadfast spirit, a stable spirit for day in and day out living with the Messiah, it should be Yeshua's resurrection. That should be something that should motivate us all the time. So when we're not feeling it, you know, when we're kind of down or maybe our emotions are wreaking havoc with us, we should be able to go back to the truth of the resurrection, not just because, um, you know, it's like a really cool teaching, it is, but also because it has so much present implications on our lives today. Now, we had a event at Ohio State about last month. Some of you know you went to it, a few here. We had this, um, call it discussion debate slash discussion debate because anyway sometimes they call them you know both those things and we had uh, a uh, my friend Dr. Michael Lacona and then we had a Jewish secular professor who teaches philosophy at the University of Wisconsin and the discussion was on Yeshua's resurrection and you know as I was out talking with people about the resurrection and trying to promote it to get people interested in the event and we were out marketing it and everything the one thing that came to my mind was how do we explain to someone today, like, if someone says, well, why does the resurrection of Yeshua really matter? Because, you see, today we live in a culture where a lot of people are saying, like, why does this really matter? I mean, I, I've got a lot of stuff. I've got a good job. I've got a good family. I've got this. I've got that. I've got goals. I've got responsibilities. And I just don't really see why this really matters. I mean, I, who cares? If you want to believe it, I'm happy for you. If it makes you happy, I'm happy for you. I've heard that before. Well, a few things to think about. First and foremost, if Yeshua rose from the dead, if he physically, bodily rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, the God of the Bible exists, okay? He is the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no, we don't have to argue anymore about the other religions anymore. There's only one God. It's the God of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Yeshua has confirmed this through the resurrection, okay? Secondly, if Yeshua rose from the dead... It confirms his teachings as true and that he is a true prophet because Yeshua predicted his resurrection and everything he talked about would be contingent on him rising from the dead. So we have to say that that would definitely have serious ramifications on who Yeshua is. Thirdly, if Yeshua rose from the dead, it assures him as the, it definitely confirms him as the Davidic king, okay? Paul says in Romans 1 verses 1 to 5, it says how, Yeshua is the Son of God, the Davidic King, because of his resurrection. The resurrection guarantees that God will have someone on the throne of David forever, okay? Forever and ever. He fulfills the Davidic covenant, all right? Then fourthly, if Yeshua rose, it provides the answer to pressing worldview questions. You might say, what's a worldview? A worldview is how you view reality. And as this, uh, it's interesting, this professor in the debate, uh, this Jewish professor, he kind of looked out the audience and he said to us, he looked at us, I was in the third row, and he said, if this is the way you really view reality, that a guy rose from the dead, that fundamentally shapes everything you see. And he said, 
you better be right. He said, because this impacts everything. It impacts culture. It impacts, uh, in his words, public policy. It impacts all kinds of things. And so he was really concerned whether anyone there had really thought through the worldview issues of whether Yeshua rose from the dead. Very, very important. He's right. He's actually right. We should ask that question. What if someone came to you and said today, why do you follow Yeshua? Why have you committed your life to Yeshua? Why do you invest so much time in this? And what if you say to them, well, I've had an experience with the Ruach and Yeshua has changed my life. Congratulations, you now sound like our Mormon friends. It's the exact same thing Mormons say. I've dealt with it year in and year out. happens every day. Why did Yeshua rise from the dead, and how could you articulate that to somebody? Why does it matter? What are some good reasons you could give to somebody about his resurrection? We've got good resources on that, plenty of resources. We could help you with that. But it is a crucial, crucial element of our faith. It impacts everything. And so... If you're struggling with motivation today, saying, you know, I'm having just challenges following the Lord like we all are, that's just part of our spiritual lives, meditate on the resurrection of the Messiah. Meditate on this chapter. God will give you a steadfast spirit, okay? He wants you to have that steadfastness day in and day out, and the resurrection can help you with that issue. And then secondly, what is it that Yeshua is saying to you, I want you to die to that? What is it? I don't know. Maybe you haven't even asked him. Maybe you've never asked him. We, in our evangelism today, most people, it's de- called decisional regeneration. Someone prays a prayer, asks Yeshua into their heart, that's it. That's not salvation, okay? Salvation's life. You're not only saved from something, you're saved to something, right? So as long as we keep telling people, just pray that prayer, we'll end up just having this issue of just this decision issue, and then it kind of stops, okay? So that is a very crucial issue. But what is he asking you today to die to? I don't know. I know what he's doing in my life, and I'm sure he's working in your life because the whole goal of God's will for your life is to be conformed to the image of Yeshua. That's his overall goal for your life, okay? So having said that, why don't we have a word of prayer and meditate on these truths? Lord, we just thank you so much for the resurrection of the Messiah I just pray, Lord God, that you would help people to receive from you today what you have for them. I pray, God, your Ruach would do a work in each and every person's heart. They'd allow you to transform them. And God, we just pray you'd help us to follow Yeshua. We thank you, Yeshua rose. And because he rose, he empowers us to follow you, Lord, that we don't have to rely on ourselves. And that is a fantastic thing that you have done for us. And thank you for your word, that we can rely on your word for telling us that. So I pray you bless each person here with what you have for them today and help them receive from you in Yeshua's name. Amen.